Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, when we started worship, there was like four people here, and I was kind of hoping it was going to stay that way, but more people have come. I thought the word had got out that I was going to speak, so uh, it was going to be an empty house. Uh, this morning, we are going to be talking about the glory of God. Uh, we've been going through uh, a summer series on the Psalms, so each week we've been taking a look at a different Psalm, and this week is Psalm 19. And what the Psalms are is basically a worship song that different people wrote uh, in the ancient times. This one's written by David. And it's communicating to us uh, one of the best messages in the Bible, the glory of God. Every day we're getting all kinds of information thrown at us. Uh, in the fourth quarter of last year, there's over 200 and uh, there's 25 billion texts sent in Canada alone. And every day we send over 250 million back and forth to one another. Um, Jay Walker Smith, uh, president of a marketing firm, said that everywhere we turn, we're saturated with advertising messages trying to get our attention. And uh, he says that, it went from 500 ads a day in the 1970s to over 5,000 a day that we're exposed to now. So all the time, things are trying to get our attention and try and get us to listen to them. But uh, hopefully after this sermon, uh, you, the thing you'll be paying attention to the most and hearing the most about is, is God's glory. And uh, hopefully if I do a good job, you'll be able to know where to look for that. In the psalm, he says uh, three things I think that will help us uh, discover and see the glory of God all around us. He shows it to us without words. He shows it to us with words, and he shows it to us uh, through the cross. So here's uh, Leo who's going to read Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky displays his handiwork. Day after day it speaks out. Night after night it reveals his greatness. There is no actual speech or word, nor is its voice literally heard. Yet its voice echoes throughout the earth. Its words carry to the distant horizon. In the sky, he has pitched a tent for the sun. Like a bridegroom, it emerges from its chamber. Like a strong man, it enjoys running its course. It emerges from the distant horizon and goes from one end of the sky to the other. Nothing can escape its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect and preserves one's life. The rules set down by the Lord are reliable and impart wisdom to the inexperienced. The Lord's precepts are fair and make one joyful. The Lord's commands are pure and give insight for life. The commands to fear the Lord are right and endure forever. The judgments given by the Lord are trustworthy and absolutely just. They are of greater value than gold, than even a great amount of pure gold. They bring greater delight than honey, than even the sweetest honey from the honeycomb. Yes, your servant finds moral guidance there. Those who obey them receive a rich reward. Who can know all his errors? Please do not punish me for sins I am unaware of. Moreover, keep me from committing flagrant sins do not allow such sins to control me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of blatant rebellion. May my words and my thoughts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my sheltering rock and my redeemer. Father, I pray that you'd speak to us and you'd show us your glory in all these ways. Amen. Uh, so right now I'm halfway through uh, a book called Walden, which was written in the 1800s by a guy who lived in New England. His name's Henry David Thoreau. Um, if you're a fan of uh, old books, he's one of the 
the people that sometimes get re recommended. Uh, the reason is because in Walden, it's basically a journal that he took over two years where he left society, he left the, the uh, town that he was in, and he went and lived by the pond Walden, and he built his own cabin, he uh, started his own little garden, and uh, he stayed secluded for about two years. And I think one of the reasons it's such an enduring book is, well, first, people just really think it's fascinating to take off from society, to completely leave it all behind, and then go and live in the woods. But the other thing is, um, when you read Thoreau, he, he, um, he gives descriptions about nature and about creation that are really, um, they kind of stir your heart and your imagination. He talks about, like, putting his hands in deep, dark soil and, and tilling the ground up when he's gardening, or the amazing sunset that he looks at every night, or how he goes swimming in the lake and things like that. There's something inside of people that, whether you're a nature lover or not, everything kind of, um, sorry, there's things inside of us that whether you're a nature lover or not, there's something that speaks to us when we look at nature. Um, it's funny that even if people don't enjoy going out in the woods and getting eaten by mosquitoes and stuff, they'll still have a picture of an awesome scenery or landscape as their screensaver. Um, pretty much everybody wants to have some kind of animal around them, even if they live in uh, an apartment building, they want to have a fish tank or a gerbil. There's something about being around organic stuff, um, botany, everything like that, that kind of resonates with us. And I think it's really important um, that we nail down why it is that we enjoy nature, what is about it that draws us to it. And there's normally about three different approaches that people take to creation or to nature. The first one would be that everything is just an accident. Uh, it's a glorious accident. It's amazing to look at, but it's nonetheless just something that kind of sprang up out of nowhere by pure chance. Um, interestingly, though, most, uh, most people don't actually believe that. In McLean's, there's a, there's a new article that came out a couple months ago saying how organized religion and atheism are both in major decline in Canada. Um, I know for me, I grew up, uh, wasn't really sure if God exists or not, but then when I was in first year university, I was in an anatomy class, and we were learning about the human heart and how there's four different chambers and how they all have to interwork and things like that. And I just thought, what are the chances of that just springing up on its own and wham, here we have human life. And if you didn't have the four-chambered heart, we couldn't reproduce, we couldn't pass on our genes. I mean, it just seems too phenomenal to be an accident. Another approach that people often take, though, and this is the one, if you're not going to have a belief system or a religion and if you're not going to say it's just by accident, the other approach people take as to why they love nature so much is um, that we're all part of the same thing, that it's uh, Mother Earth and that we're all connected, whether it's the rocks and the stars or the river, we are a part of that. And so it's okay to, to worship or pray to, to the earth or to things around you, to get in contact with them, to want to be one with them, um, and to kind of set yourself at ease from being apart from it and try and almost merge into it. Uh, the problem with that is, when it, is what David says here. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky displays his handiwork, and day after day it speaks out. Night after night it reveals his greatness. There is no actual speech or word, nor is a voice literally heard, yet its voice echoes throughout the earth. Its words carry to the distant horizon. The third reason, or the third way people can look at nature and why we're so attracted to it is what David is saying here. It's artwork. It's, it's something that's been made by a creator, and it draws you in. Uh, my brother, he lives in Toronto, and he's a graphic designer, so all the time he's constantly creating art for different things that he has to do. Sometimes it's for uh, his career, and other things it's just for his personal interest. So I've seen a lot of it over the years. But it always reminds me of Ben. That's my brother. Regardless of what piece it is, there's some kind of part of Ben left in that, that piece of art that he makes. It's something uh, that if you knew him personally, 
you could see a little piece of him. And I've grown up with him, so I can see all the different attributes or characteristics of Ben left in his artwork. And David is saying here it's the same thing. It's not as if God is in creation. He's not a part of it. He's other than everything he's made, including us and nature. And yet, at the same time, there's some piece of him, there's some kind of uh, thing, residue, that he's left in, in nature that, that points us back to him. It's his handiwork. So, so for instance, uh, when he goes on about saying how uh, nature is basically talking to us. It doesn't have a voice that you can hear audibly, but yet it's telling us about the glory of God without words. He says, In the sky he has pitched a tent for the sun. Like a bridegroom, it emerges from its chamber. Like a strongman, it joys running its course. It emerges running from the distance and goes from one end of the sky to the other, and nothing can escape its heat. Uh, when people draw cartoons, what they normally do is if they're going to draw an animal, they'll make it have like a human face or something like that because it's easier to relate to than if you just drew a, a literal animal and things like that. There's some kind of emotional connection the artist is trying to get you to have with it. And the same thing even when you look at uh, the little cartoon for the Raisin Bran, the sun isn't a perfect dep- depiction of a sun. It's got sunglasses and a smile and stuff like that. That's called um, an anthropomorphism, and that's what David's doing here. He's almost giving the sun a voice. The sun isn't alive, and it can't think for itself, but he's comparing it to something that we can easily relate to. So when he says uh, it's a bridegroom emerging from its chamber, that's a guy going on his honeymoon and getting out from uh, the hotel room in the morning with a bounce on his step, a smile on his face. Uh, When it goes for uh, a strong man enjoying the running its course, that's when the sun, from our perspective, passes from the east to the west, when really we're doing a re- our planet's doing a revolution around. What that is, is from our perspective, it's showing us, hey, this is the sun is just like a guy going out for his morning jog, and they love doing it. He's using the sun, but we can give all kinds of different examples of how uh, nature is not only doing its job and displaying God's glory, it's not only like an art piece that shows a bit of God's handiwork or the artist's um, characteristics, it's happy to do so. So this leaf is huge. It looks like it, I got it from Costco or something. But uh, it's in it, there's, there's veins that spread the water that it pulls up through the trunk, draws it into the stem, spreads it out. It takes our carbon dioxide and re- changes that using uh, really sophisticated chemicals and, and puts out oxygen for us to breathe. In other words, it is telling you, it's speaking to you without words, I'm no accident. I'm not just here out of pure chance. I was designed and I was gloriously made. So one application before I move on is when we enjoy scenery and when you look at something that's awesome, whether it's an animal or something, you know, it's summertime, there's all kinds of great flowers and colors. Don't just take it in and say, wow, that's pretty. Make it a prayer. Make it a point to consciously talk to God and say, you are wonderful for making that. Thank you for allowing me to see some of your beauty, your creativity, your power. So if nature is talking to us about those things, there's another part of the passage that is telling us something else about God's glory. Uh, When he goes on about his commands, there's many things that the Bible talks about to describe God's glory or his attributes, his personality traits, his characteristics. But two I want to focus on uh, that come out from this passage is God's wisdom and his authority. Uh, the funny thing about, about people is that we're the odd man out when you look at everything in nature. Everything in nature is doing its job, so to speak. And like I said before, it's happy to do it. So when the sun 
stays in place and all the planets revolve around it, it's because God said, you stay in place and the solar system is going to revolve around you. Or God says to the leaf, I want you to get this big and no further. Or he says to the river, I want you to rise this high, but no further. The only thing about us that's different is when God tells us, I want you to do this, I don't want you to do this, I want you to believe this or not this, people then look at God and say, maybe, or no, or I'll get to it when I want to. There's that attitude that we are unique from all the other parts of creation where we say to God, our creator, I'll make the choice, I'll call the shots. And so what, that, what the Bible describes at it is sin, or foolishness, if you want to call it that also. And in Proverbs 9, verse 12, it says, if you become wise, you yourself will benefit, and if you scorn wisdom, you yourself will uh, you'll suffer the results, you'll get hurt. So one of the ways I've looked at this before is um, if you want to look at wisdom and foolishness, if you go out to uh, a fast food restaurant, uh, and this is definitely my guilty pleasure all the time, if you go to a fast food restaurant, the choice is before you. Do I want to get the burger and fries and supersized pop? And even though it's going to taste really good when I eat it, about an hour later, I'm going to feel like trash. Or do I get the healthy choice? And it may not, I may have to take, you know, a little, it's not going to taste as good, but overall, I'm going to feel better afterwards. Sometimes when you do things like that, that's called wisdom. That's delayed gratification. So that's just, a, just kind of an analogy about, about health and stuff like that. But when the Bible talks about wisdom, it means way more than just looking after your body. It's talking about morals. It's talking about your beliefs. It's talking about life decisions, things that really matter. And if you scorn wisdom, if you want to be a fool and not do what God tells you to do, you will, you will suffer the consequences. But if you want to become wise and listen to God and do what he says, you will benefit. That's why David is so over the moon. That's why he's so excited and he uses all these positive descriptions to talk about God's law. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect and preserves one's life. The rules set down by the Lord are reliable and impart wisdom to the unexperienced. The Lord's precepts are fair and make one joyful. The Lord's commands are pure and give insight for life. There's an interesting thing that's happening here. Um, when you get into the Hebrew, what's taken place is David, the writer of this psalm, has switched from using the word God to using the word Yahweh. That's God's personal name in Hebrew, and we translate it the Lord. So if you had, say you had a doctor and his, his name was uh, Phillips. So when you're at the office, you say, Dr. Phillips, Dr. Phillips. But then pretend that you see him in another environment. Say he invites you around to his house. And you go, uh, Dr. Phillips. And he interrupts you and says, no, no, not Dr. Phillips. Call me Steve. He gives you his personal name. There's that relationship. There's some kind of line that you've crossed where now he wants you to not only know about him or know what he does, but he wants you to know him personally. So I think David is kind of secretly giving us that impression that when you take on the law of the Lord, when you want to follow God and you know him through the Bible, it's not just knowing about God, it's knowing Yahweh. It's knowing him personally for yourself. The other thing, um, when we talk about God's glory and him being all wise, is, uh, is it's a real concern for people's well-being. People sometimes look at commands that the Bible gives in the wrong way. Um, if you're at a job site and your employer tells you that you need to wear a hard hat and you have to have steel toe boots, or say you're working in retail and the, the, your shift supervisor says, this is how we lock up the till, this is how we count the money, this is what we do, there's checks and procedures and all that, those rules or commands are in your, they're in your own interest. They're given because your employer cares about you, because they want what's in your best interest, 
That's the same thing. When God gives us commands or statutes or laws or precepts, those are things that show that he cares about us and that he is wise enough to know what's right. It shows his glory. Uh, A little while ago, I was uh, volunteering with some struggling readers, and one thing that uh, I would do to try and encourage them or inspire them to love reading is uh, there's this YouTube clip of Will Smith talking at a Nickelodeon conference, and he he tells the audience of young teenagers uh, about the importance of reading. And he says, listen, you're going to go through all kinds of things in life that you've never gone through before, you've never experienced. But the problem is that most people, because they don't read, they don't know how to handle those situations. They just have to... They have to learn from their mistakes and go on. But if you like to read, then guess what? Nothing's new under the sun. Somebody has already gone through that same experience and wrote a book about how to solve that problem. So if you read, then you can find out the answer, and that way you don't have to make a mistake on your own. That's what Will Smith was saying, and it's a good point. But the problem is uh, everybody thinks they know it already. Everybody, uh, when you tell them good advice or when, the, when somebody gives good advice to me, the natural inclination of the human heart is to say, I know it already. Like, you don't have to tell me. So to think about that, think about where you were about 10 years ago. Whether you're a teenager now or whether you're in your 20s or you're in your 40s or whether you're a senior citizen. Think about where you were 10 years ago. And if you could go back in time, I bet you'd have a lot of advice to give to yourself uh, about how things really work even though at the time you felt like you knew it all. You felt like you knew how life worked. You felt that if something was wrong, it's other people's fault, that there was um, all kinds of things that other people were getting wrong, but you knew knew the right way. But now, 10 years in the future, you're looking back and you're saying, geez, I wish that I could go back and tell myself then what I know now. The problem is you're still in that same place because in 10 years down the road, you're going to look back and think, I didn't know it all, and you wish you could go back to your present self and tell yourself all kinds of advice, all kinds of knowledge that you've picked up along the way. So in other words, we can be fools. We can fool ourselves into thinking that we're really wise when we're not, but that's where where God is so loving and so concerned for our welfare that we can be wise now. God can tell us what's right and what's wrong, what to believe and what not to believe, how to make life choices now so that we can make wise decisions. We don't have to make mistakes and learn from them. We can listen to him and he knows what's best for us. So the only way to do that is to trust God. So um, the Bible shows us that God is glorified in nature. He's speaking to us without words. It's his artwork. Um, God shows us his glory through the commandments when he tells us what's right and what's wrong and how to live the life that's going to benefit us. But he not only shows his glory in his wisdom, but also in his authority. The commandments to fear the Lord are right and endure forever. The judgments given by the Lord are trustworthy and absolutely just. Uh, So a few days ago, I was walking around, and there was a guy who was working on his four-wheeler, and uh, I stopped and talked to him, and uh, he had taken this thing apart. He had bought all new parts to to kind of refurbish it and make it the way he wanted it, and uh, he was putting it together himself. So not only was he the maker of it, but he was the owner of it, and so... By no means could anybody else, including myself, go and tell him, this is what you're supposed to do with that machine. There's a principle, there's a relationship there that we all know that when you own something, and especially when you've made it, you're the boss of it. You get to control it. And so in the same sense, God as our maker, as our creator, not only can tell us wise choices and give us good counsel, but in a real sense, he owns us. He has absolute authority over our life. 
Um, so it's not just self-help and how to live a better life. These commands are coming from our owner or our maker. So when he forbids us to do something, that's what it is. It's, he forbids it. You cannot do it. Or he commands you to do something. You have to do it. You're bound to do it because he's your owner. Um, the problem lies with the fact that no matter what culture you live in, especially um, the, day we, the day and age we live in, people are always going to find something about the Bible or the commandments of God or the things he tells us that are going to rub them the wrong way. It doesn't matter what culture you live in, what time and place, there's always going to be something that sticks out and it goes against the culture that you live in. And the funny thing is, it may not even be the same thing. So say we have a problem with one topic. Say um, in our culture, you know, the command that, that you're going to keep your clothes on before you get married, and then after you're married, you're going to keep your ring on. That kind of thinking goes against what our society tells you. But in another society, that's very common and that's understood and no one has any problems with it. But then something else like you have to forgive your enemy, that you have to be gracious to people who you don't like and who treat you unfair. In that culture, that would totally smack against what people believe and how they live. Where in our culture, Canadians are pretty tolerant, pretty forgiving. So do you see how it, what I mean by that? That you can't let culture define the way that you look at the Bible and you look at scriptures. You have to allow it to dictate how you judge culture and how you decide what's right and what's wrong. And uh, to go along the same idea about how you look back 10 years and you think, geez, I wish I could have changed things. If we look back 100 years, you could think of things that your great-grandparents believed and did that you're pretty embarrassed of. You think, how in the world did they ever think that, believe that, do that type of attitude? And we can have this kind of superiority complex where we now know what's right and we've come along in society so that we can judge the past. But again, think about it. In 100 years from now, people will be doing the same thing. Your great-grandkids will look back and say, I can't believe those people in 2013 thought this, did this, believed that. In other words, things are constantly changing, but the Bible isn't. If you go through the time frame from when the Bible was written to when it's completed to right now, think about what it's endured. Uh, the first writings would have been done in the Egypt, uh, when Egypt was the superpower that ruled the world, and all the things that they believed and, and they thought were the right way to live and how the world came about, what they gave glory to, that's long been, been uh, disproven and nobody follows that anymore. Then, even in uh, the time of David, there's all these tribal religions that would have surrounded Israel, and many people were drawn to want to follow those type of ideas and those mindsets or those ways of life. But think about it. All that stuff has gone the way of the dodo bird. Uh, you think about um, even Alexander the Great or the Romans, which would have been around during Jesus' day. All again, that superpower is gone. It's obsolete. And even now, we have America and China. Those two superpowers will fall apart. And in years down the road, all that will change but the Bible. The Bible has stayed the same. God's way has always been the same. It will outlast you. It will outlast our culture. So it is the final authority. It is the judge by which we, we cipher through everything else and all the, um, the day, de- day decisions we make. They are of greater value than gold, than even a great amount of pure gold. They bring greater delight than honey, than even the sweetest honey from a honeycomb. Yes, your servant finds moral guidance there. Those who obey them receive a rich reward. David loves God's laws. He, uh, he's comparing them to food. He's saying, it's just like if I was walking in the woods and there's this massive honey tree or honeycomb thing and there's all this honey dripping down and I'm just smacking my lips. He loves it. So 
That for us would be in summertime, it's like you're going to a barbecue and there's juicy hamburgers or it's corn on the cob and there's butter and there's salt. He's comparing his appreciation, his love, his infatuation, his obsession with the law to the same feeling you get when you're really hungry and you're appetized by some food. Again, he's doing that to make an emotional connection to draw you in to see his perspective. Um, yeah, and he knows that there's rewards, there's bonuses for, for obeying them. So he's committed to living that way, and he wants to do it. But now verse 12 to 14. Who can know all his errors, though? Please do not punish me for sins I am unaware of. Moreover, keep me from committing flagrant sins. Do not allow me, or do not allow such sins to control me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of blatant rebellion. May my words and my thoughts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my sheltering rock and my redeemer. Um, so he goes over two types of sins that he really wants God to protect him from. One would be something that he's unaware of or unintentional sin. And the other is flagrant or flat-out intentional rebellion. Um, And he even goes to the point where he says, God, I even want my thought life, I want the words that I say to be pleasing to you all the time. I want to be 100% your guy. I want to be dedicated to you all the time. So at this point, I could end the sermon and I could say, there, go and be like David. But we've got to end our song the same way that David ended his, by saying, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So the three ways that God shows us his glory in this passage is uh, he is saying that his glory is talking to us without words. There's a message going out from nature that is talking about the creator, his artistry, his handiwork, his power, his beauty. His glory is also on display when we look at the Bible, specifically the commandments, because it shows God's authority and it shows his wisdom. But lastly, God's glory is on display through the cross. Because the problem is, even the great David, even him and all his wisdom and all his knowledge of the law, he failed to keep it. Um, The Bible records two types of sins that David did. One thing where he did wrong, uh, so he committed something that violated what he knew was, was against God's will. He wined and dined a lady who he wasn't married to. She was married to another man. He became the other man in that relationship, and uh, he seduced her into committing adultery on her husband. The other type of thing that David did wrong himself was uh, what the Bible calls sins of omission. So if you do something wrong, you're committing the wrong thing. But if God commands you to do something right and you fail to do it, you're omitting that. And so for David... Um, sorry, in Dan Brown's new book, Inferno, he opens off with a quote from Dante that says, the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who remain neutral in times of great moral conflict. In other words, they sit by when they know something needs to be done. And twice in David's life, uh, David does that. When his family's falling apart internally and when his daughter's been abused by another man, the Bible doesn't record that David does anything about it. He just sits back. My point is, it's one thing to know the right thing to do, And it's another thing to actually do it. So it has every, and the reason for that is it has everything to do with what you give glory to. What is the most important thing? What is the most special? What's the most deserving thing in your life? What do you chase after with your heart? That's your real Lord. Um, So say on the surface someone says, hey, listen, I know it's wrong to lie. Um, God's the truth, and he tells us not to, so I'm not going to do it. For the most part, I bet you they can be a really ethical person, and in 99% of the time, they'll tell the truth. 
but you get them in that right situation, you get them in a job interview that they really want that job, or you get them in some pressure cooker situation where if they tell the truth, they're going to get egg on their face, they're going to be embarrassed. What really matters to them isn't what you think it would when they say, hey, look, I, I don't lie, I tell the truth. What's really motivating them is their reputation. It could be some relationship that they're afraid to lose, or it could be getting hired for a job that they really must have. The deepest part of their heart what they give glory to is something other than God. They're calling something else more enjoyable, more special, something to pursue more than God himself. And that's why you get them in that situation. They will compromise. They will break the law. So even for David, when he commits adultery, sensuality is that thing that owns him in that moment. Sensuality had taken God's place. But like I said, the way that we get around this, the way that we can really become like the true David and say, I want to do God's will all the time, keep me from intentional sin or unintentional sin, is we need to end our psalm the same way David did, my rock and my redeemer. Uh, the word rock here in Hebrew refers to a type of uh, rock that they would find in the mountains. If the enemy had come into a village or a town and was going to attack them, people could run for the hills and hide in these rocks. It's basically in our, in our society be like a panic room. Anything can go on on the outside, but if you're in the panic room, you're safe. That's the rock. And the Redeemer, we use that word sometimes if you think if, uh, so say you, you are working in retail and say you had a really bad day and uh, you told off a customer and things like that and then your supervisor comes to you the next day and says, listen, you need to redeem yourself today. Yesterday was a bad day, but today you need to have a good day. It's to flip it around. So David at that point when he's writing is still writing in the Old Testament time. So he knows the Lord in a general sense is the Redeemer but we can be more specific because there is a man who was called the Redeemer. There was a man who lived hundreds of years later, and he said, those who have seen me have seen the Father. In other words, if you want to see God's attributes, if you want to see his personality traits, if you want to see what God's really like, his glory, then look at me. The other name that that man got, aside from the Redeemer, is the Word. And the Bible says in Psalm 33, verse 6, that the Word made the heavens. So when you see the sky at night and when you see how amazing the stars are up there, the Word made that. And in Colossians 1.15, it says that He is the image of the invisible God. Um, it's really neat when you, read, uh, when you read fiction and you think about the main character because oftentimes what will happen is an author will write a book, but they'll also write themselves into the story. So for instance... Uh, with Lucy Ma Montgomery and when she writes Anna Green Gables, you have to wonder, did she really love Gilbert Blythe? Was she the type of girl who you read about when you read Anne Shirley and she gave her a different name but she's really writing her life story and that she kind of had some secret crush on a boy like Gilbert and all those type of things were something that she really wanted to experience and she writes herself into the story. Or going back to Dan Brown when he writes Inferno, uh, Robert Langdon, he's, Dan Brown has quoted saying, I wanted to be Robert Langdon all the type of things he's interested in, all his adventures, that's what I wanted to do. But it's fiction. But when we talk about the Word and the Redeemer, we're talking about the author of life, but he does that same thing, only it's not fiction. It's true. It really happened. God loves you so much that he wrote himself into the story of the world. The last night before he died on a cross, it says, he's, he's praying to the Father, he says, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. How is Jesus bringing the Father glory? By finishing the work he was set out to do. In 2 Corinthians 3, it says, 
As we look at Christ, we are changed from one degree of glory to the next. When you realize that the most natural response God has for you, or he should have for you, but he doesn't, is separation. That when we go back and we think about all of creation, all of nature wants to do God's will and it's happy to do so. But for us, we pick and choose our spots. We treat it like a buffet that you can pick some things in the Bible. You're going to ignore others. When you do that, you're basically saying to your author, the one who gave you life, I'm in control. I'm the one who calls the shots. The most natural response for God would be, or should be, separation. But instead, he writes himself into the story of your life. Jesus edited himself out of the story on the cross so that you could be written in. He becomes David's true guilt so that you could become his true innocence. And uh, when you get that, when you see that for what that is, that Jesus took your place, you can't help but also say, you are my rock and my redeemer. And I want a clean conscience for you. I want to obey you. This is the type of thing that will replace whatever you give the most glory to. If in your heart you're worried about your reputation and what people think, once you see Jesus for who he is and you see him in all his glory, it will change you to be the type of person that says, you know what? I don't care about my reputation. It's not going to control me. If it means that I lose this job or if I uh, get in trouble with a friend, I'm going to tell the truth because it doesn't really matter about people's opinion because I have the opinion of the person whose only opinion matters. It will replace whatever you had in your heart with God himself. So God has been speaking to us about his glory. He's making himself known to us so that we will love him and so that we will sincerely want to do what he tells us to from the heart. The psalm shows us this in three ways. God speaks without words. Uh, we give God the credit for making everything, and it shows us to, agree, to a degree what he's like. But the problem with unspoken communication is you get mixed messages. Think about body language or face expressions. Sometimes you can get the point across, but other times you have to use words. You have to have something that's clear, and people can perfectly understand what you mean. So God shows his glory in the Bible. He, does, uh, he gives us the commands, and they show us his wisdom and his authority. And lastly, most importantly, God shows his glory on the cross. God isn't just the author of life, and he doesn't just have justice, and he doesn't just have all the power in his hand. He also has mercy. He has mercy for you. And if you see that, and if you understand that, then the word will become like honeycomb to you, or, uh, <laughs> honey to you. Now we can pray like him. My rock and my redeemer. Your commands are honey to me. Tell me anything and I want to do it. So if I can have the band come down, we're going we're gonna to worship God together. Father, I thank you for showing us your glory in nature through your commands and through the cross. And I pray that we would love you and we respond to you by saying that you are our rock and you are our redeemer and that we want to live our life for you. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, one other thing while the band's just getting ready, uh, God also displays his glory in healing. Uh, we know that at one time in the future when we're with him in all his glory, we won't have sick bodies, but reality is that now we do have sickness and things like that. And so if you have uh, anything that you'd like prayer for, uh, particularly with healing, I believe, I was praying this week, I believe that God would love to glorify himself by healing people this morning. So if, if you have anybody in your, in your life that you want uh, prayer for, or you yourself, to be prayed for a sickness, uh, I'll be down here, and I'd love to pray for you uh, during the worship time. So, thank you.